welcome to How Have You Not Seen That? My name is Wilson. I'm Crossman. And I'm Charles. Normally, this is a podcast about movies where we discuss a film we have not seen, but perhaps should have, something that's missing in our filmography. But we're returning from a break that was supposed to be short and was delayed by illness and business trip, but Charles is healthy <laughs> now and Crossman is back in town. Um, so we are doing our best of the decade, the 2010s. Um, so we are splitting this one into two parts. We're doing 10 through 6 this episode and 5 through 1 next week. Um, and we're starting with Crossman. So, Crossman, what was your number 10 movie of the 2010s? It was, um, I'll start by saying it was hard to cut down to 10. Harder than I thought it yeah, would. We can do, yeah, it, uh, I, I started with a list that was just like, here's what I'm considering. And it was like yeah. 40 movies at least. Oh, you had more than I did. I got to about 20. You, I, I pared got, it down from there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, mine's definitely a favorites list rather than a best list. I, I was like, oh, yeah. this is going to be very tailored to my taste. Like that is. I mean, I pick the movies cool. that I feel like still resonate with me to yes. this day, yeah, and that. like that's very different from what a quote unquote best movies list. Would right. Be. I, yeah. I was like, because I think that if you talk about a best of list, like it's going to get pretty homogenous. Like I, I, I reviewed yeah. like several lists, and you could see like the same, you know, fifteen twenty movies that were gravitating towards the top, and some of those are on my list, but I kind of was like, let's not just do that like we know what the critical consensus is that's not that interesting yeah. let's look at like what we like the best sure right was that your tact or did you have a different mostly mostly i think there are okay. a few films that like i really like that i was like i'd have a hard time arguing that was like one of the 10 best films of the right I, I think there's a handful that are on my list that might be in that category but i still just said fuck it i want to talk about uh, this movie i think like example of that would be like the first purge like Oh, okay, sure. Mm -hmm. Not not the first Purge in the series, but the movie, The mm -hmm. First Purge. Yes. And I really, really like that movie. I think it's an excellent movie and yeah. has really good politics and is fun to watch. But I was like, I, I don't know if it's like one of the best of like the 2010. That's like, I don't know yeah. if I want to put it on a list. Right. And yeah. I had a couple like that that I was like, ah, yeah. I mean, on a different day of the week, yeah, maybe Last Jedi is on there. But yeah. okay, no, <laughs> I shouldn't put that on there. Yeah. Um, okay, but anyway... Crossman, what is uh, what is number ten for you? Uh, number ten for me was uh, Kubo and the Two Strings. Oh, that's Ooh. a great movie. Um, like a film, like as an animation production house, they make really good films. Um, I think all the films that they made are actually very good. Mm -hmm. um, I think this is the best film that they've made. Um, very touching story about a child who kind of like loses his parents and then goes on like very whimsical journey to kind of like find himself and find his place in the world. Mm -hmm. um, what really stood out to me was the animation in this film, just outstanding. Um, it's a stop motion animation style. Um, like, produces a lot of like ephemera around like how they make their films. So I, I highly recommend like just kind of watching videos about how they make them. Um, but it's like really complex stop motion puppets that they're putting together, um, and just like time and effort is really what goes into it, and the results are amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and they're very in this movie. They're very inspired by origami as like a style, and so they mm -hmm. like the geometric nature of like all the characters and the animals and the talking animals in the film are are like really amazing. Yeah, I remember watching yeah. this in the theater because I think it's the only movies of movie of theirs that I've seen. Um, but Probably the same for me. I like throughout yeah. watching it, I was like, I'm not entirely sure if this is all computer generated, all yeah. animated, mm -hmm. hand drawn. I don't I don't know what or actual things. And then they they get they get to that portion of the credits yeah where they show them like constructing one of the you know beasts that yeah. appear in this movie I was like, my mind. oh they actually yeah. put this together yeah it's huge and like super so detailed big. yeah yes. i was like oh shit that's that's what this movie is yeah it, out of that knocked my socks off 
right there. Yeah, I think they're amazing at kind of putting together something that seems impossible to, yes. to make. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they do it. And um, I, this is the only animated movie that made my list. I think it's also like a very like emotionally affecting movie. Mm -hmm. It and, is. Um, and really well told. I think it's a very complex story about like loss and mm -hmm. loss and like how family is constructed. Yeah, and, like how you how you conceive of who, who your family is and like why they're important to you and losing and regaining them. Um, which mm -hmm. I it, it it's when it gets to the core about like family being important or like you, you know it, that kind of message. It seems simple, but it's so purely told. I think that yeah. it, it really is affecting. Yeah. Um. The other thing that I like about Kubo is that, like, I think from, like, the 2000 to, like, 2009, Pixar really, like, put a flag in the sand and said, like, this is how animation looks now. Mm -hmm. And there really hasn't been much work outside of that until Leica came along and was, like, actually, like, there is still value in these, like, older forms of, like, movie making. Um, Especially in America. Yeah. In American animation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, I like the sort of resistance to the, like, hegemony of... Of, of Pixar. Yeah. I think it was a big loss so. when Disney shuttered their like hand-drawn animation studios. Yeah, I agree 100%. There's so much homogenization of art style because they're all just CG. There's still value to, to hand-drawn animation. I mean, like, you see, like, you know, Japanese anime films coming mm -hmm. out these days and they're all stunning, right? So it's, it's a big loss that we don't have that anymore. But mm -hmm. it's nice to see, you know, some more experimentation with aesthetic styles and the medium yeah I yeah absolutely agree. and if you're not willing to spend the money everything looks like a like a bad computer cutscene <laughs> and i think that's the like kind of dreamworks take on animation <laughs> yes. and i think that's proving to be kind of a failure there's a lot yeah. of animated films that have come out in the past five years and most of them have tanked um yeah that's fair so yeah i think Leica makes a really good product and they get rewarded for that have and, you seen i'm sorry finish your thought um, and they they just won a Golden Globe for Best Animation, which is the first time that like Pixar's been shut yeah, out. That, that was my question. Have yeah. you seen Hidden Link? I have not. No. Okay. Um, and it actually, of the Leica films, is sort of the most poorly rated, even <laughs> though it's rated well. Yeah. Um, so Very typical of award seasons, right? To like lag behind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny <laughs> that they get rewarded for that one. But yeah. I, I've heard it's kind of cute and charming. Um, yeah, I want to watch it. I, yeah. I, I plan to. So, cool, good pick. That's, cool. A, that's a good movie. Um, what do you got, Charles? Uh, so, for my number 10, uh, I'm giving a shout-out to this year, and I picked Knives Out. Nice. So, it, it was hard to gauge if I wanted to pick a movie from this year, because there's a lot of recency bias, and, like, I'm still fresh with this movie and all that, right? Um, but I was really blown away by this one enough that I felt like I really, really wanted to include it on the it's list. So good. It was very, very good. Um, I haven't. I don't think I've seen too many mystery films, but, I, you know, you get the the idea generally of like you're trying to figure out who's saying what and what they're saying like or who is saying something that might have a double meaning right. or who's lying or whatever right and the movie immediately like throws you for a loop and it turns out none of that is the point and it tells you what the point is mm -hmm. um, that you're trying to follow this immigrant girl um, who was trying to help the the uh, author who died um, but ended up accidentally killing him but then, like, it still reveals that that wasn't actually what was going There's on. Yeah, another a thing. further twist. <laughs> yeah. And these all felt, like, unexpected, a little hard to predict, but also not totally out of left field. They're all set up in a very mm -hmm. rewarding way. Um, and on top of all this, there's great performances all around. It's a great ensemble cast. Um, it's very funny. 
Uh, and <laughs> I, I really liked the, the general like discussion and message that it had about like immigration and uh, inherited wealth and you know all that. So all in all, just like so great through and through. And I'm pretty excited for more um, Benway, Benoit Blanc films. Me too. I hope that um, happens. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like it might be hard to recapture the magic of this film, but who knows? I mean, if Ryan Johnson doesn't, then he'll probably find a way. Right, and, and it's very typical of the mystery genre to have like the central detective character that travels from like ensemble to ensemble to yeah. to solve the mystery. We saw that with Agatha Christie. We see it with Sherlock Holmes. Like it's it's a pretty stock. Uh, trope. Uh, yeah. Um, I actually saw this movie again. I, I very rarely see movies twice in the theater, but I did see this one twice. So I was like watching it, like to see. Kind of wish the, I did. Like how many? It's still screening. Like you That's can. True. Um, like how many cues there are, and like it is. It everything fits together so well. Like even yeah. when you're like very consciously looking for the stuff. Right? Yeah. Looking for yeah. The, Some of the later twists that reveal yeah. that like they actually gave you the information. Yes. On screen, where like I thought they were very clever. Yes, I agree. Um, and I what I liked on this second viewing um, is how Daniel Craig plays Benoit that like th yeah. there comes a point in like that towards the end of the second act where you start to suspect as the audience that he's an idiot yeah <laughs> like that the Benoit Blanc character is just a dumbass and he's just like constantly missing things yeah, he might like, be like a satire of that type of character right and that's and then and like oh is this the joke that like this guy isn't able to figure out the thing but that the Anna Dharma's character will be able to um, and then it, yet another twist right at the end that he does put it all together yeah um, and, and it, it's so You're just baiting them he, right it, it just works so well such a great movie and yeah of course Ryan Johnson pulls it off right yeah, yeah. I think um, Daniel Craig should stop Playing Bond, and well, he's, just do like he real, real movies. This is last one, I think, the one that's coming out soon. Yeah. Well, also and they had Anna to drag Thomas. him kicking and screaming yes. into this one. It sounded like because I think he was done. Yeah, he's Bond. getting a little old for it. Like yeah. he's pushing fifty, I think, maybe even older than that. Yeah, but yeah, I think he's he's on the way out with Bond. Yeah, my turn. Yep. Okay, I picked The Handmaiden. Uh, directed okay. by Chan Wook Park. Have either of you seen this movie? I have not. No, I've heard definitely heard of it. It's great. Um, so it's another kind of a mystery story, um, similar to Knives Out. Uh, the premise is it, it takes place in like 1950s, 60s era uh, Korea. Uh, there is a band of thieves <laughs> that have targeted a wealthy like literature collector um, to like steal his stuff and to like trick him into. Uh, giving away things and like it, it's narratively complex mm -hmm. um the lead character is sent to pretend to be uh the handmaiden in the title um to the uh target's um niece his his younger niece um what unfolds from there is essentially a story in three parts where you see the story told straight from the perspective of the handmaiden told differently and drastically changed the perspective from the perspective of the niece character that is being handmaidened to um, and then the two of them coming together in the in the, in the final act. Mm -hmm. The reason I like it so much um, is how well Chen Wu Park controls audience information and audience sympathy. Mm -hmm. So it's similar to uh, the Parasite in, in this way, in that like it, it, there's a very masterful control of exactly what the audience is feeling in a given moment, but he also has masterful control of where your sympathies are in a given moment. So you have this concept of who a character is that will be drastically different an hour later, and it all makes perfect sense, and it's all just a matter of a, a change of narrative perspective. Um, it's a narratively dense film. There's a lot of stuff that happens. It can be hard to track sometimes, mm -hmm. um, especially because it is largely in Korean, um, which can be a, a 
challenge for, for some viewers. Um, that said, um, I think this is a director at the top of his game um, that we've seen make good movies before, and he's kind of perfected it here. Um, so th- I remember this was the first movie I saw at the Alamo Draft House nice. in, in Brooklyn, um, and kind of cemented that theater's credibility for me. Um, <laughs> but I've returned to it a few times this then, since then, and, and it holds up really well. Um, it's a blast to watch. It's a lot of fun, um, and gets much weirder than you anticipate <laughs> when you start it. Um, but yeah, it's great. It's The Handmaiden, Kenwood Park. Um, what, what else is uh, he known for directing? Um, I, he didn't do Old Boy. What did he do? Um, okay. I was wondering if he was. But... I thought, maybe, yeah, maybe that was Old Boy. I think it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, yeah I'm, I, my first. Because I mean, a lot of your description correct. of this movie sounds a lot like yeah. what's great about Old Boy. It was Old Boy. I was misremembering. So yes, if you liked Old Boy, check this one out. It's it's not as uh, like violent or sure. disturbing as yeah. Old Boy, um, although it certainly has violent, disturbing moments. <laughs> um, but it is, um, I think in a sense, more uh, narratively daring, not in terms of what the content is, but in terms of how it's structured. Like, it's it takes the complexity of, yeah. of Old Boy and kind of kicks it up a notch. He also directed Thirst, which is a really, yeah. really good movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, if you, li- if you like that stuff, this is another good one. Uh, also importantly, not The Handmaid's Tale. Right, it, it, <laughs> they did come out around the same yeah. time, and it did get confusing. Yeah. Like, is it Handmaiden? Is it Handmaid's Tale? Is it, yeah, it's, it's not clear. It's not clear. Um, but yeah, that's my number 10 for the decade, The Handmaiden. Uh, what do you got for number 9? Um, I Another Korean film, I chose Parasite for okay, my great. number 9. Nice. Uh, okay. This is Bong Joon-ho's most recent film. Mm-hmm. Um, I almost kind of backed off this one. Um, what gave me pause about it was people like Elon Musk saying that they liked it. <laughs> he is not a very good at reading media. <laughs> yeah, but th- that gave me a lot of pause because I was like, maybe this film isn't saying... <laughs> Saying what I think it's saying. Right. Um, well, you wonder if people are saying it just because everybody's saying they like it and they feel like they want to fit in. I think that's a big part of it, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Or that they were like one of the cool ones, so they're like yeah. in on it. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's a pretty kind of damning film. It's just about like how capitalism <laughs> works. And um, I think what's most impressive about the film is just that the, uh, to me, was like the tonal control of the film. In yeah. that, like, the first half kind of acts as, like, a sort of, like, switcheroo comedy, which at times feels mean, but is very funny. Um, and then suddenly it becomes, like, a very intense thriller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the switch is just masterfully done. Yeah. And in a way that's, like, incredibly convincing. Right. It, it does, yeah. it, it's sudden, but it doesn't feel abrupt. Yeah, I think that's the difference, right? It's not mm-hmm. it's yeah. not jarring when that happens, like when the when the woman goes down the stairs into the in the back of the kitchen, like you're like, oh shit, that's what happened. But it's not like I'm disoriented that because of what mm-hmm. happened, and I think that speaks to his yeah, his and just that moment control. of terror when she like disappears down the stairs, and you're like, don't go in there. This could be anything. <laughs> yeah. Like literally anything could happen at this yeah. moment, and and knowing Bong Joon Ho, like literally anything mm-hmm. could happen because he's known for fantastical. Films. Yep. And mm. um, yeah, I mean, I, the, like so many things. Like, is there an alien down there? I honestly yeah. thought that when watching, it's like maybe there's an alien. <laughs> I mean, the name of the movie makes it sound so <laughs> yeah. sci-fi, right? Yeah, like, it's, it's totally plausible. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was not brave enough to put a 2019 movie on my list. I considered yeah. several. Um, oh, really? And I, I, I held off for the recency bias, correcting for my recency bias. I, I just went for. It. I, I think like Parasite was just like really good. Yeah, and, this was certainly in contention. Um, so was Knives Out, and so was Transit. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but it, it's it, funny it's because I would have, if we'd done like a top of 2019, I probably would have had Parasite at like number two. But yeah. even there, I feel like a contrarian about this movie because like I liked it. I thought it was great, but I didn't like it to the degree that most people seem to be raving about it. I hear that. Um, because like I seem to be the only one who felt this way, but I felt like at the like twist in the middle, I kind of lost interest in the movie for some reason. Because yeah, wild to me. Yeah, I don't know why. <laughs> Something about that it like it wild. started to feel <laughs> like the movie. Yeah, I don't know why, but it felt like the movie was dragging on a bit when they were kind of uh, just hanging out in the living room, mm -hmm. and then that turned into them like hiding in the living room. That one scene just felt like it took so long, and I oh, was kind of wanting it to move on. No, and... I did not read it that way, man. <laughs> yeah. the, my only, uh, I guess my minor quibble with Parasite is, I guess I have to, uh, the relationship between the tutor and the student. A little creepy. creepy. Pretty creepy. Yeah. Um, and I don't think the movie really... My other problem is I think that Bong Joon-ho doesn't quite connect what's going on here to the external world or like into a larger critique in, a, in a, as clear a way as I would have liked compared to something like Snowpiercer where I think it was sure. very clear in Snowpiercer that he's saying like this entire apparatus that is the train, that is society, um, is corrupt. And You think the ending was maybe a bit of a cop-out? Of, of Parasite? The, the very last scene, yeah. The Well, I, I read that. Sequence. I don't think that actually happened, right? Like, that was his dreaming, right? Yeah, like, but, yeah. like, you know, he's this. that's still the way he's imagining fixing this problem. Right, right. I think that there's a reading of that that says that he still hasn't awakened, right? Like, sure. that if, if he were, if he had achieved class consciousness, he wouldn't be dreaming about becoming rich. He would be dreaming about destroying the rich, mm -hmm. right, and destroying this system. Um, and I don't think that's a flaw with the film. Like, I, I actually think that that works, um, but I think that, it, there, there's one more step that Bong Joon-ho could have taken here one, to, to really drive their critique home, and I'm not sure that it's there. But this is, this is a minor quibble in like a really expertly made film um, that does have a lot going for it. I, th I think it's artistically also incredible. Like, so clearly shot. Yeah. And the, uh, when I learned that the house wasn't a real house, it was just mm -hmm. a set that they had designed, I'm blown away by that. Yeah. That's just like, yeah. the production it, I mean, level, that's just like It looked like a real house. It felt like... It felt like you could tell what the geography of the house was. It was so very consistent. Well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And it looked like a nice house. Like, it looks yeah. like a very nice house. It's yeah, believable. Yeah. And then their apartment also, like, the the contrast the between the two is so important mm -hmm. to the mm -hmm. film. Yeah, I mean, the house uh, looks like falling water or something. Like, it's yeah. like, has a Frank, Frank Lloyd right feel to it. Yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, good pick. Parasite, no, I don't think anyone's really going to argue. Uh, what do you got at number nine, Charles? Okay, so for number nine, I picked Ladybird. Nice. Um, so I like this one a lot. It helped me that year, um, like, kind of branch out beyond the typical movies that I'm interested in seeing in theaters. And I remember that year there were a lot of movies similar to this that mm -hmm. I went and saw. Like, I think there was Eighth Grade and, like, Call Me By Your Name, I think, was the same year. A um, bunch of movies like that that I feel like I normally would not explore, but this movie was so good and so captivating for me that I decided to go and explore some of those. Now, I felt like I've kind of lost that sort of like mood. Mm -hmm. um, I need to get back into that mode again, um, just to expand my horizons a bit, but this one helped me a lot. Um, but yeah, I was just so drawn in by the story of um, the Ladybird character as she feels kind of out of place in her like boring suburban life. She has some conflicts with her friends and her mother as she's in this sort of transitional period where she wants to leave, basically. She feels like she's outgrown her neighborhood. Um, yeah, I mean, just just thoroughly captivated by it. I felt like I really identified with that kind of phase of life, and, you know, I, I really like kind of revisiting it, 
I guess. Um, I mean, we've all been there. We've all, you know, traveled pretty far to go to college to and things here. like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, I just thought that was really interesting to revisit. Um, it, yeah. it was it was so fascinating to me because I had seen several Greta Gerwig movies prior mm-hmm. to this, all her, her work with Noah Baumbach and all this. To see her debut as a director so fully formed, like that she, she just has such such a vision, yeah. right, and such and such a re- clear rapport and affection for her characters and for her actors, um, and to just yeah. see that on the very first go is so impressive and so exciting that we, that that we know like with with Lady Bird and Little Women now mm-hmm. that we have. I need to see that one. You do. It's so good. <laughs> I, I loved that movie. Um, we have decades of Greta Gerwig movies to look forward to, right? And it's just yeah. such a thrill because she's young. She's like yeah. 34 or something. And and to know that and to know that she is just so excited about making movies and making these types of movies with with such care and affection, uh, it, it's exciting. It, Was it, she it, nominated for Lady Bird? Because I know she hasn't been nominated for Little Women. But... Nope. Nope. Inexplicably, she was nominated for neither. Huh. Um as troubling as that may be, because um, Little or Lady Bird is a well-directed movie, yeah. and I think that it's not immediately obvious, like because mm-hmm. you know Oscars award the most, like the sure. most visible. I have a hard time telling a lot of the time. Right, but I I think that you see, uh, like like there there are interesting shots of just like the suburbs of Sacramento, yeah. right? Like there are there are good like when they cut to. Um, her and Beanie Feldstein crying in the car listening to Dave Matthews, right? <laughs> it's very funny. It's very, like, yeah. I, immediately identifiable, <laughs> like, yeah. what's happening there. Yeah. Like, it, and it, it comes from that, like, cool bird's eye uh, shot straight down at them. Like, these kinds of choices, like, she's doing interesting things yeah. when this coming-of-age comedy, like, could have been shot and presented in a more pedestrian way. Yeah. And she didn't do that. Um, to her To her great credit, so... Yeah, well, it's an exciting movie. I love Lady Bird. It's great. Yeah, yeah, the Academy might not recognize her, but I do. Yes, <laughs> me also. Have you seen Lady Bird? Right? No. You should. It's good. No. Easy to watch. And I think it's streaming on everything by now. Uh, but super good. Yeah. All right, we'll see. My turn. Uh, my number nine is Clouds of Sils Maria. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a little bit of a deeper cut. Um, this is one of the movies I was thinking of when I said I just picked ones that I personally liked a lot sure. this year. Um, so this is Olivier Assayas. A movie came out in 2014. It stars Juliette Binoche um, as a middle-aged, act, middle-aged like famous actress who is that's what Juliette Binoche actually is in, in France. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kristen Stewart plays her uh, personal assistant. Um, the story opens. We learned that the director that initially recruited um, the Juliette Binoche character to the stage um, has has died, um, and that she is going to uh, a memorial to commemorate him. The role that she was originally cast in some 20 years ago was about a young girl who's in like 18 or 19 who seduces an older woman and eventually like drives this older woman to suicide. While, while the um, Binoche character is at this memorial service, um, she is pro- approached by an up-and-coming young director who wants to restage this play with her in the older role now. And a uh, younger, a- younger actress played by Chloe Grace Martz, Moritz, if I say her name, playing the role that Juliette Binoche was recruited into and made her famous. The bulk of the movie is um, Julie Binoche and Christian Stewart um, preparing for this part, essentially. It's them like running lines, having conversations, analyzing the text as they roam about like the mountainside in Switzerland. <laughs> and Sils okay. Maria, that's the, the, where the, the title of the movie comes from. Um, 
what I like about it, um, other than Kristen Stewart just having a phenomenal performance, like this is the movie where I realized that Kristen Stewart is something special, that she's not mm -hmm. the Twilight girl. That's what I, when I saw this movie. It grapples with the idea that our understanding of a text and art and media can change so dramatically throughout time that what hits us a certain way when we're 18 or 19 is going to hit us another way when we're, mm -hmm. you know, 40 or 45 or 31, as the case may be. And how that doesn't necessarily mean either view was incorrect, um, but just that we have to learn to accept that we can have, we can hold throughout our life contradictory views of not just a singular text, but a singular person um, and a singular moment in our lives. Um, mm -hmm. and, that, and that that is legitimate and, and, and meaningful. Um, it also, I think, takes seriously popular media. Um, so this is a movie that is very much a movie about movie, a movie about texts, um, and it treats you know superhero movies with seriousness, right? And oh. it, it treats popular media as something that you can analyze and find merit in, um, and that there is a general generational gap there, um, but that the younger side of it is right. It's essentially the, the, the take that the movie has, um, which is interesting to see in what's basically a French art movie. Um, so it's, it, it was really good. This is the same guy that directed Personal Shopper a few years later, mm -hmm. also with, with Kristen Stewart. I think this is the superior film. Um, I, I like it a lot. Um, I've returned to it a couple times and also in anticipation of this list and realized that really my opinion of it has, has stayed firm. Um, so it, it's on Netflix. Like You can just stream it at this point, but it's really good. It's called Clouds of Sils Maria. Um, and I, I recommend you go check it out. All right, what are we at? Eight? Eight. Eight? What's eight? Uh, number eight for me was First Reformed. Oh, that uh, was higher on the list for me. Uh, that was my seven. So Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. We're right, we're, right, we're right there. I guess I'm not that much higher. Cool. Um, really like First Reformed. It's a very intense movie, um, to say the least. Um, very stunning movie that grapples with um, the climate apocalypse and like how, <laughs> how one should react to the sort of inevitable climate apocalypse. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Ethan Hawke gives just like a powerhouse performance. That's his career. Yeah. It's yeah. gotta be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, someone who like was sort of like, you know, just sort of like a normie way of thinking about things and then really becomes convinced that like something must be done. Yeah. And I think what he does is like very powerful and interesting. And brave. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, um, this is Paul Schrader wrote and directed this. Yep, he very... said it was the best movie of the decade when he was putting out his list. <laughs> he put his own movie on there, which is so great. Um, and he's he's not wrong, it's a very good, it's very good, it's yes. a very good film. I think a very powerful film, very like effect. Like when you watch it, I think you're really affected by it, yes, and um. Yeah, it's interesting to see someone of Trader's age like putting out such a quality product where like he's had like real bangers from mm -hmm. decade to decade. You know, rate ta taxi driver in the seventies, Raging Bull in the eighties. Yep. Um mm. and then comes back, you know, thirty years later. I mean he's been making films all along, but to drop this mm -hmm. in twenty seventeen, forty years after, you know, making great films and then yep. to come around to make a film like this is Incredible. Yeah, it, it, um, it honestly might be the most radical film that that I saw. Certainly in 2017, maybe in the decade. Probably. Like, yeah. like, I mean, politically speaking, like it 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 makes a 
persuasive argument for assassinating CEOs of energy companies. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, that yeah. is really what the movie's about. Yeah. Um, and that's a really radical take. Yeah. Right? It's not firmly saying, like, yes, this is what you should do because the, the Ethan Hawke character is also an alcoholic and severely depressed and, like, you yeah. know, has big life problems. But, like, the facts of the situation are presented very starkly. And the, what our options are are also presented very starkly. And it's not unpersuasive. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a, it was a hell of a film. Yeah, to watch. Yeah, it really it was is very it, it, stunning. And in knowing that, you know, I think that Paul Schrader does have a, some history of substance abuse, and to see a film that deals with it so plainly and like mm-hmm. doesn't have a resolution that's like, oh, we hit rock bottom and, you know, went to AA and cleaned up. It's just like, no, he has a serious problem and it fucks up his life. Like, that's what happens in yeah. this movie. Yeah. It's also an interesting depiction of, like, functioning alcoholism. Yes. Because, like, Ethan Hawke is, like, able to get up and go to work and drive and interact with people and right. have, have relationships. Um, and he's also an alcoholic. Right. And the film doesn't really seem to, like, judge him for that mm-hmm. in a way that I think we're trained to because of, like, addiction media. Yeah. Um, so I think that's an interesting way of looking at things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I, yeah. I liked this book. This one is one that stuck with me because I saw it when it came out and I think it was in the spring. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it was still around, it's still riding around in my head and it, it certainly was mm-hmm. by the time the end of the year rolled around. Yeah. Um, yeah, this this one hits hard. What's interesting about the film though is that I think a lot of people took their wrong message from the film. Which one? The film being that like the boyfriend in the film is correct. So the, the sort of like plot setup is that there's one of his like congregation comes to him and he is unmarried but has like a child on the way with his girlfriend and he um the man from the congregation is just like because of the climate apocalypse i think it's immoral that we're having a child and that's just kind of his like thesis and then it turns out he's like a kind of a climate radical and has been kind of like drifting from place to place and seems very much like a lost soul um, and then early in the film, this man, like, kills himself. And yeah. that, that kind of, like, triggers Ethan Hawke's character to, like, sort of evaluate where he fits into this movement. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people took the message that, like, the young man in the film is correct. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's what the film is, is saying, in that, like, we should just, like, give up all hope and yeah, not, think... not do anything. Yeah, I don't think that's um, true. Versus, like, what I think the film is trying to say is that, like, we need to do things we need to do, like, very radical things and that um mm-hmm. we need to sort of consider those like radical things and take them very seriously mm-hmm. um but i think a lot of people sort of like take i think what is rightfully described as like an eco-fascist view of things where like overpopulation is an issue and which is just a racist perspective yeah yeah, yeah. um whereas like no we have like plenty we just need to like do better allocate it better <laughs> yeah right. The other thing yeah. I liked about this movie, and I think something about yeah. it that resonates with later Scorsese work, um, is how much it, it deals with the crisis of faith, because the Ethan Hawke character is a priest. Yeah. Um, and this notion that, like, the God has rules about nonviolence, right? Like, yeah. God, God has, you know, you're supposed to love your enemy. You're supposed to treat your neighbor as you would treat yourself. But there are also rules about being a, a steward to the earth. Right and and protecting the innocent and 
that what do you do when these things come into mm-hmm. into as a Christian, right? Like as a believer, mm-hmm. like this this guy is, what is he supposed to do when these things are in direct conflict with one another? When when he sees powerful people that are, you know, endangering the lives of literally everybody, like how can he reconcile that with his faith? Um, what how can he reconcile that with his uh, his belief in God at all? Um, and I think that you see. So Scorsese deal with those things in movies like Silence and Last Temptation, but then Paul Schrader is, I think, taking that to a much further conclusion um, that is really, I think, mature and not entirely resolved by the end of the movie. I, I don't think that there's a firm answer to those mm-hmm. questions because, you know, those are life questions. But, um, yeah, I like that about the film a lot, too, that it takes faith seriously, that it takes religion seriously. Yeah. Because, um, you know, a lot of people are religious. <laughs> and it's willing to sort of, like, call out charlatans in a way that sure yeah i think a lot of films don't like they it does a interesting job of like showing two very different interpretations of faith Mm -hmm. and comes very much down on the side of like a sort of more moralistic and Mm um someone who's like yeah really grappled with their faith Mm -hmm. like being the sort of correct take on yeah faith versus someone who's use it for self-gain right that, that your your yeah. your obligation as a person of faith or a person of morality is to is to grapple with it yeah not, nece- not even necessarily to come to one conclusion or another because i think the film is a little ambiguous on that point um but to at least ask the question you have an obligation to ask the question yeah. and that that's the the success i think that the, the ethan Hawke character finds is that he asks the question yeah and also that like faith and what's interesting is that like the film treats it as like there are like two men who like have faith as a vocation mm-hmm. and the the one that sort of like lives it like has a much more different outcome than someone who's like just using it as a vocation performing it yeah 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 absolutely so yeah, yeah. great movie yeah um, it was on my list too um, I, I love this movie it's yeah it's fantastic i think it's vital um where what are we at Eight? eight? What's eight, Charles? All right, I'm going to do a complete 180 with my number eight. Okay, great. Uh, I picked Pacific Rim for number eight. <laughs> oh, wow, okay. Um, this is on my list of films that didn't make it, but oh, I yeah. was like on the border of... Yeah, yeah. Uh, I felt like this movie was important enough to me that I had to include it on the list because I reason. was just so blown away by it. To me, it's like everything I want in like a popcorn action film <laughs> uh, as like a big fan of like giant mech stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I was just so pumped, like, seeing this in theaters. Um, I kind of expected this to be kind of bad, like, you know, Transformers and that kind of thing. Um, and I don't know if this elevates itself that much beyond that type of movie, but it was, it hit all the right notes for me that I was just, like, you know, pumping my fist in the theaters. And I went back and saw it, you know, maybe three times, I think. Really? Because I just couldn't get enough. It's very easy to watch. I just couldn't get enough of that action. Uh, it was very satisfying in IMAX. Uh, the sound design was very good for that because it yeah. felt like, well, the mechs are done very well so that they have a ton of weight to them. Mm-hmm. Both the mechs and the monsters because they're huge, but the hugeness of them is treated well uh, such that you kind of have that sense of it, right? It's not taken for granted. Um, but seeing it on IMAX, every footstep like kind of shakes the theater <laughs> right, a little good. bit. And it's very immersive <laughs> to see it that way. Uh, it helps that Guillermo del Toro is behind this because he does a great job at constructing the universe um, to make it just the right balance of like kooky and campy but also like just enough serious that you can kind of not be taken totally out of the world by how ridiculous it is i mean a lot of people are taken out of the world by how ridiculous it is but i wasn't yeah that's i wasn't i thought it was awesome not every movie's for everybody yeah yeah (laughs) exactly um 
it's something that you could definitely see was lacking in the sequel, for example. Sure. He, he's got that kind of magic touch that <laughs> like makes everything in the world so much more vibrant, so much more lived in. Well, yeah. I mean, between the first and second one, it was like, oh, well, like somebody had a thought when they were making the first one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the second one was just like, all right, let's just make some money, I guess. Yeah, that's the first one know. was. Yeah. 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 Well, the, the second one <laughs> had a lot of issues. Yeah. yeah, I think Del Toro was initially supposed to work on it, and then there were some problems with it, so he fell off of the project, and they got yeah. delayed, and, like, that's not a good recipe for a movie to do well, no, no. matter what. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I mean, just everything great to say about this one. I love that it, uh, sorry, I love that it combines uh, mech tropes from American and Japanese media. Okay, yeah. sure. Uh, so, like, Japanese media, you have, um, like, you know, the kaiju and all mm -hmm. that. Uh, you have them like you know pulling out the the sword in the air and like you know saying something about avenging your family and all that right it's all very japanese um but it also fuses in like what i would consider american aspects of like the mech genre are like bulkier more industrial feeling mechs mm -hmm. that seem more like realistic military designs now these are you know not quite that but like it's closer to that where they're really heavy really bulky less maneuverable that kind of thing it kind of fuses the two different uh, main like producers of mech media into one property that works really well together. Yeah, I'd, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I I agree. I, I think one of the things that they did really well is that like they really showed like the gravity and like the weight of things. Yes, the film does it, and this is not my idea. I've watched a number of like people talk about this, but like the the way that things kind of like lumber because they're yeah. so large like really shows that like oh these are big objects and you can yeah, feel absolutely. like the weight of like when they walk and, and yeah that's sure. that alone i think like sells the film yeah. and th that is what separates it from something like transformers yes. right where it, n not only that you know the the cg is done well and you have this this sense of place and permanence with the, the objects being depicted but that like there's a clarity and a groundedness mm -hmm. uh, yeah. to this movie that I think that uh, Transformers uh, lacks. Um, yes. so that you, I think you might have talked about this. Like, the, the, there's a YouTube essay about like the floating camera <laughs> that yeah. that Transformers uses, where it, it yeah. never feels like it's situated in a place in this world that it just kind of moves about, yeah. like as the the action requires it. Um, but I think that Guillermo del Toro is so much more aware of what the audience is actually experiencing that he is wise enough to not let the power of computer-generated images like overpower this sense of cinema. Yeah. And that was what works. A out. lot of the scenes, the surprising number of scenes they shot, like, quote-unquote, for real, like, when mm -hmm. um, there's a scene where, like, the, one of the robots, like, punches into a building and you see, like, the fists, like, come through the building. Yeah. They built, like, a third size office nice. like a miniature and they, they just like ran like took a wrecking ball and like ran it through <laughs> and it looks real because it is it's real, real. Yeah. yeah that helps and, a lot it's um, like i feel like it's like how i feel like the uh the original trilogy star wars films have aged a lot better than the other star yeah, wars movies. the effects are real Obviously, they're all yes. they're all matte paintings and models yeah. right so th yeah. they still look good it's, to it's know. like a real object that you, you're looking you, at it's hard to beat real objects even to this day so yeah, yeah. and in terms of like uh, you know, movie tech, like, I think that is the big, the, the, the hallmark of this decade is, like, us relearning, they're, like, filmmakers relearning that, like, actual things, shooting actual objects, you know, is a good idea. Like, it makes for better filmmaking, yeah. right? Like, that's that's a big takeaway, I think, from this decade of, yeah. of movies. Um, yeah. I, I also had a very good experience in the theater watching this movie. Yeah. I saw it on opening night, on, like, the Thursday opening night. 
Um, and Del Toro pulls a crowd. Like, they're yeah. people who are fans of Del Toro. And it was so much fun uh, watching the movie that opening night. And I saw it in IMAX, too. Yeah. In the moment when they, like, pull out the sword on the robot, the whole yeah. crowd just, like, <laughs> went nuts. I'd never seen yeah, a reaction amazing. like that in a movie theater. That's cool. And um, what's-his-face? Who's in all the Del Toro films? Um Ron Perlman? Ron Perlman. When he showed up oh, on screen, yeah. the crowd was just like, yeah. <laughs> like went nuts. It's pretty is. good. Yeah. It's pretty good. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I like that film a lot. And it was it was on my, like, close. Honorable close, mentions. Yeah, honorable mentions. Very yeah, yeah. nice. Uh, cool. Uh, what were we at? Eight? Eight. Oh, my n- number eight is one we've already mentioned during the course of this podcast. Call Me By Your Name. Um, so nice. this is going in a drastically different direction than uh, we'll the, be whipping back and forth a right. lot. I'm sitting here. It's, for me, like I've talked about this movie on the podcast before, but this is a movie to just kind of luxuriate in, right? Like it feels like this. Wait, is this the anime or the? No, your the name romance. is the anime. This, this is the romance. Is, this film. is the yes. This is okay. the uh, Timothy Chalamet <laughs> Harvey Hammer movie, uh, directed by uh, Luca Guadagnino. Um, what, what I love about this movie is that if you have this sense of an eternal summer, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you, you, it, they're just hanging out in this little Italian villa with this tiny town attached to it. They're gradually circling around one another and eventually finding one another to have this, you know, timeless romance. But the the feel of the movie is that you two are just kind of hanging out with these people mm-hmm. um, in, in this exotic location, in this perfect summer where the weather's always great. And it just is so... It feels so precious in that way, and but not in a way that's like cloying or like overbearing, mm-hmm. but just in a way that's like pure warmth and like something to be treasured and something to be held on to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so hard to capture that in a movie, and there are so few mu- movies that can that, that like there are, are a lot that seek that feeling, and so few that find it. Um, and that it it feels at the same time like experiencing childhood and looking back on childhood and that is it, it's it's so magical um, and, and that's what this movie feels like to me it's just a mm-hmm. magical transportive uh, style of filmmaking and, and I love it a lot so I, I, I won't belabor it because I have talked about this movie several times I think yeah. on this podcast um, but I still love it and when I was putting this list together it just was inevitable that this one would, would end up on here um, and yeah. here it is I'll, I'll admit I had a hard time with this one uh, I went into it because like I went into it with high expectations because it was so hyped up and mm-hmm. it was a big Oscar contender and all that um, but I felt like during the movie I had a hard time figuring out like what Figuring out like at what point in the relationship they were and what sure. was like actually happening between Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer's characters, um, and I guess the movie felt very laid back or subtle about it, um, so I was just kind of lost, I guess. To, to me, I was I was I hear what you're saying, but I, I was just kind of along for the. I don't yeah. want to say a ride because this movie's not a ride. Yeah. Like you're along for the mood, the journey, <laughs> the tone, right? Sure. Like it, it, the scroll, I guess. <laughs> like, <laughs> and and I like that so much about it that okay. it's just like, yeah, they probably don't know exactly where they are in their relationship either, right? But like that's the point is that they're like have this push and pull, and that you just are kind of aware that they're going to find one another eventually. Yeah. And yeah, that's the thing. Like, I, I guess I wasn't aware outside of just knowing what the plot of the movie was. Sure. I didn't see that, like, developing or building up or even, like, get set up. And then it just kind of happened. And so I was very confused by it. Right. But I think that's why this, like, how well this movie handles time um, mm-hmm. is, is so effective for that narrative. Because by the time they do find one another, which is relatively late in the film, mm-hmm. like, you and the audience become aware, like, oh, there's not really that much time left. No. Right? Like, mm-hmm. it, 
and, and to me that so accurately reflects like the feeling of summer right mm -hmm. like when you are experiencing summer as a child like yeah. it feels like it's lasting forever but then school starts in two weeks yeah right but and also childhood itself that like you you when you are young when you are a teenager it feels like an eternity until it's over and then it feels very abrupt yeah and it feels very sudden and I think that that's what this movie captures is that like oh like of course they can just hang around this yeah. Italian villa forever and ever because they have forever and ever but then it's like oh no they get like one trip together and yeah. like they both realize and especially Timothy Pichelme realizes that like oh no there there actually is a timer on this thing yeah and like that I think is just so well handled and that it's reflected in the the pacing of the film as well mm -hmm. it's, it's to me just masterful work like I, I, yeah. I really like that about it though even despite my like kind of confusion with the movie, uh, I was still like totally blown away by the father's uh, oh, advice yes. and monologue Jesus. at the end. Yes. <laughs> so like, you'd think that that would land if you were like more invested emotionally in the characters, and I felt like I wasn't too much, mm -hmm. and yet that was still an extremely powerful moment for me. Yeah. And that was just so well well written. Yeah, it, it's it's hard not to cry. I think when yeah. you're watching that, it's yeah. just it's so moving and so honest yeah. right and and heartbreaking that uh, unforgettable mm -hmm. unforgettable scene yeah I, I absolutely love it um so yeah that's my number eight right eight <laughs> of the decade um what's number seven Rossman? number seven for me um was a movie that not a lot of people saw but i really like um it's called den of thieves hey, you um, love this one i really really like this film yeah. um it's a great action film um it stars uh, Gerard Butler's the main like heavy in the film, um, but there's like two other main characters. One played by a guy named Pablo Schreiber, Schreiber who plays like a lot of bad guys in films, mm -hmm. um, and O'Shea Jackson Jr., who's Ice Cube's oh, yeah. Ice Cube's son, who played him in um, Straight Outta Compton. Yep. Um, and this is a very straightforward like cops and robbers film. Um, but what's immediately apparent about the film is that everybody in the film is a bad guy. Um, <laughs> there are no good guys at all. <laughs> Um, so what happens at the beginning of the film is there's a, um, a bank truck that gets like knocked over by this like very professional crew and, uh, Gerard Butler plays like a LA kind of like special ops detective. Um, but he's like incredibly corrupt and like an asshole and his team is just like a bunch of assholes and they're all like very corrupt. Um, and then we see like the robbers sort of get ready for like their next action and Gerard Butler like trying to like track these guys and figure out like what their next moves are. So it becomes this like sort of cat and mouse game be between uh, Gerard Butler's character and, and Pablo Triver's character, like sort of like one upping each other, um, like all around LA. And then like, then things go very wrong and it turns into kind of like the shootout scene from Heat, but for like 45 minutes. <laughs> uh, Good space to be, right? Like, uh, that one was already like 40 minutes <laughs> yeah, long. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a little shorter than the one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's interesting about the film is that it, it feels, there's also like an Ocean's Eleven element to this where there's okay. like a lot of planning for this yeah. heist and like a very well executed heist. And then there's also this like incredible shootout in right. it. Um, the other thing I really like about this film is that it does a lot to show which I think none of the films like this do it, is to show the kind of like fallout around these actions. Huh. Um, so Gerard Butler's like family kind of like disowns him. Like his wife moves out and like takes the kids okay. and like there's a constant like tension there that he's like a bad person and a bad dad. Um, and it's like very clear 
in the movie that he's a terrible person. Mm-hmm. Um, and then during the shootout at the end of the movie, what's interesting is to sort of show that, like, it's not like an empty city that they're mm-hmm. in. They're in, like, downtown Los Angeles. So as the shootout's, like, starting, the, the um, Gerard Butler character and his team are, like, trying to, like, clear... Um, people who are like in their cars to like get out of their car and like, or to like get down and like get out of the way. And like a lot of these movies, like it's just like an empty city and like everybody just like, you know, shoots each other. Or you show them run away and then it's it's like, like, it's all right. Yeah. Yeah. We've dealt with the civilians. So just go fight. This film I think does a good job of saying like, if you were going to use like sort of battlefield weapons in an urban area, what, what would happen? And, um, it's very intense film. I think clever in in a lot of ways and uh, like a really fun character portrayal by people who are like really trying to outact each other okay. in ways <laughs> that's like very fun. And I think Gerard Butler's like a very fun actor to watch. Mm-hmm. And I really yeah. really like his films, even though most of them are bad. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think Geostorm's awesome. I highly recommend but, it, and I highly recommend this film. Yeah, we'll get to that one later on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. Um, Thieves is awesome and really, really fun film. Yeah, and yeah, thank you for reminding yeah. me of it because I know you've yeah. you've raved about it before and you're persuasive, uh, but then I yeah. just forgot. It sounds um, so exactly okay. my kind of movie. Yeah, and I, I keep forgetting it. to see it. Uh, remind me again at some point. If, yeah, if I don't watch it, but um, yeah, it sounds great. Like it sounds cool. It sounds like it's kind of responding to some of the critiques of superhero movies because they have that the the same problem where it's like, oh, you're yeah, sending guys too. flying through buildings and stuff. Like, what's the collateral damage of that? You look at like the earlier, early, uh, not earlier, but like the um, Superman movies like mm-hmm. have that problem, and it seems yeah. like this might be interacting with that same concept. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, um, yeah. The characters like get injured in this film. Yeah, and that like doesn't happen in superhero films. Yeah, that's and, that's you know. a, a correct thing. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, what do we got? Uh, seven? Seven. Yes. Seven. All right. My number seven is Drive. Yes. So yeah. I worry that this is a bit of a meme pick because it became such a like cult hit amongst uh, film buffs. Yeah, but it's also great. Um, so when I first saw this film, I was unsure of what I had just seen <laughs> um, because there's a lot of like pauses in the movie. It's kind of a slow movie most of the way mm-hmm. through. Uh, and obviously, it was advertised as if it was like a heist film, and so I went in kind of expecting more of that. Yeah, um, one of the worst advertising campaigns of all oh, yeah. time. All yes. time, it's got to be. Yeah. yeah, it's it's getting the wrong people, uh, just trying to appeal to like the mainstream, but they're not the type of per- yeah. I mean, people who would want to see this kind of movie. If they pitch it as like a neon art film, mm-hmm. there's an audience for that. Yeah. I an audience for that. <laughs> and it yeah. was when. Breaking Bad was really big, so they were yeah. like starring Brian Cranston. Yeah, no, right. actually, like three scenes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, which is the same thing they did for Godzilla. Which is oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, um, as time went on, I just couldn't get this movie out of my mind yeah. for so many different reasons. Um, it's got this kind of like dreamlike feel to it, I guess, that lingers with me. It's got yes. a great style to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so like. A great, great look, great cinematography, but I find myself rewatching it just by accident all the time. Yeah. Just because I'm like, you know, that opening car chase scene is so good. It's one yes. of the best car chases I've ever seen. I agree. Where it's it's just really clever and it seems realistic how he's able to like dodge the cops um, in well, that it, scene. It, it characterizes the Ryan Gosling character so immediately. Yeah. Right? Like that you, you know yeah. who this guy is right off the bat. Yeah. And that when you can get that kind of character work done 
a very early in your movie and in an action sequence, like that's yeah. great filmmaking, right? Like that's yeah. what's so effective about it. And among so other things. yeah, and so at first that scene is what lingered with me because again, I think it's one of the best car chases in film. So I would, yeah. I have the file on my computer, right? I'll boot it up, I'll watch that scene, and suddenly oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, I gotta stay and listen. Gotta to, I gotta listen to Night Call, right? right. I mean, they're, they're playing the theme. One of the best right? soundtracks. Absolutely. It's so good. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And then before I know it, I'm just watching the whole movie again. <laughs> yep. And like suddenly it's two hours later, and I've rewatched the whole movie, and this just keeps happening. This has happened multiple times, and like I don't know how that happened. Uh, I just got over like some of the weird, awkward uh, silences and things like that, mm-hmm. and I just appreciate that this is what his character is, right? It's like the strong and silent type, I guess. Um, you know, it's an interesting, interesting tale of him trying to grapple with his ties with the underworld and trying to get out of it, trying to find some like wholesomeness and innocence, and just totally failing, and just trying to like, you know, cover up his tracks and make up for his mistakes. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think that's a really captivating story. Um, but yeah, and beyond just like being an entertaining and lingering watch for me, this has been like very influential outside of the movie itself because it got me into the, like the sort of synthwave sure. genre of music. Yeah, and that's yeah. like half the music I it, listen to now. It's it such an important, it really well. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. it just makes it such an important movie for me. I also yeah. feel like this film introduced Oscar Isaac to a lot of people. Yes. Yeah, them uh, and Michelle Williams. I wonder yeah. if that's the first time I saw him. No, I, I think the first time I saw him was actually in Sucker Punch. Oh, wow. People forget that he was in that, and I forgot until very recently. When did Drive come out? Was that like 2011? 2011. Was it that early? 2011? I actually forgot it came out in the 2010s, and I I think I just assumed it was in like 2009. Okay. I guess Um, I don't remember if Sucker Punch came out before or after that. uh, I think it's before. I think it's before. Um, Otherwise, I think this would have made my list, because I really like this film. Yeah, it was on my short list. Like that list of movies that I came up with Mm -hmm. initially, this was on it for sure. Um, what I, I like how this interacts with action movies, right? Because yeah. I think that you have this Ryan Gosling character who, in terms of his actions, seems a lot like a conventional action hero, right? Like he mm-hmm. drives his car like a badass. He's not yeah. afraid of violence. He always wins every fight that he's in, right? Like, but all of that leads him to nothing, right? Like, and, and to the me, situation just gets progressively worse. Yeah, his life just gets worse and worse and worse as he it, as he drives his car better, as he uh, exhibits more violence upon people. Like every outcome for him yep. is negative, and to me, it's a violent movie that's anti-violent um, for that reason. What it, it shows you is that your violent actions will lead you to violent ends, and yep. it, like. I, I, I think that's world up in here. Yeah, you're right. That is what that is. Um, and and I, I I like that 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 this movie deals with that idea. And I think that Ryan Gosling handles it well. And I think mm-hmm. that he offers a performance that could be boring and isn't. Right. Like yeah. I think we have enough like little moments from this guy um, that he is not that he's not dull. And I think I, I, to additionally to that point, I think it's important that this movie ends with him in a mask. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you don't see his, his his face at the end. He is a masked hero. Right. Mm-hmm. So critiquing our, our it's hard to not read basically every movie in the context of superheroes these days <laughs> but I think this one is very consciously doing that um, and, and setting him up as like literally an anti-hero in the sense that he is meant to be responsive to yeah. heroes um, and that works I, I do have a lot of friends who hated this movie they're, they're for wrong. a lot of the reasons I specified before <laughs> yeah. it's a very polarizing movie <laughs> it is yeah. uh, and I feel like I have a hard time explaining to them like why it's good, but a lot of a lot of my reaction to the movie is just this general like feeling. Yeah, well, it's it's it, it, Nicholas Winding Refn like is one of those guys that kind of operates on one tone, mm-hmm. but as opposed to Fincher, he <laughs> he has identified when to 
what, what projects to select that that tone would make sense for. Yeah. Right. So he has this one. He has a neon demon. He has uh, only God forgives whatever yep. the other movie is. Um, and he had yeah, like a show recently too. Yeah, oh, yeah. but I, I'm not. I, he does, but I, is yeah. it out yet? I'm not sure. I think it's been out. Yeah. Okay. But I think that he is. He knows his space. Mm-hmm. Right, and I think that this is like the exact right space for him. Is, yeah. is dry and it's ilk. Um, so yeah, well chosen. Cool. I, I think one of the best things about Drive is just that's very cool. Yep, like, <laughs> that's true. Like, Gosling looks cool. He wears this like corny scorpion jacket, and it, it like it looks it awesome. Becomes a cool Dope scorpion. scorpion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he has yeah. those uh, driving gloves that I yeah. remember so distinctly because when he crunches his hands, you hear oh, yeah. the like, he like crunches them on the hammer. Yeah. Thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you hear the leather just like yeah. gripping yeah. it. Yeah, that was that was cool. And also, kind of at the beginning of the film, it's like implied that like the character just does the crime for like fun. The hell of it. Yeah. Yeah, or that he's bored, and yeah. it's just something that like a cool person would like do. <laughs> right. Yeah. What a badass. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So cool. I should watch this movie again. It's been a, it's been a little while. Yeah, it's been I've ages it. since I've seen it. Um, it's probably why. It, fell off for me but right but, that's but, just what happens to me it'll be 2 a.m i'm like i'll just rewatch that scene oh it's 4 a.m and i rewatch the whole movie whoops uh, yeah, i, I think i have it on a drive somewhere too yeah. Uh, yeah the drive drive because <laughs> it's great i should look for it yeah um all right my number seven we already discussed um it was first performed um I it's stand, super good stand by that ranking it's still great um yeah. what's number six number six for me was uh once upon a time in hollywood yes all right um yes. tarantino made a lot of really good films uh, in the tens. Yep. Um, actually, not a lot, but the made films that he made were <laughs> very good. Um, I did he only have two? He had this one in Hateful Eight, right? And Inglorious Bastards. Right? No, Inglorious Bastards. Was Django not this decade? Oh, maybe Django was. Uh, Inglorious Bastards is not because it would have been on my list and I checked. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, Django yeah. is for sure. I like sure. Django. Um, anyway, uh, Once Upon a Time is great. Um, loved it. Um, just as like a seventies period piece, I think it it works. Um, really really well it just seems like um it's like you want to like be there when they're just like driving around la Mm -hmm. and it's just like oh this is like really nice it seems like fun and like cool Mm -hmm. and then hanging over this movie is just like dread as to like what's going to happen at the end of the film and then uh, tarantino really masterfully just like pulls the rug on you and just Changes history just like he did in *Inglorious Bastards*, so we should have all seen it coming. But, right, but we didn't. Um, you don't know which how, way he's going to change. Right, history. yeah. Like, how could you ever predict that? Yeah, because what uh, you see coming is Sharon Tate like getting escaping murdered. or like being the one that gets to murder them, um, and th- that he just absolves her of any of that violence. Yeah. Is what so why it works so well. I, I thought it was to gonna her. be the murderers killing DiCaprio, right, and uh, Brad Pitt. Yeah, yeah that's for sure. I, I, I thought well. that seemed like where he was heading, and then yeah. he did the opposite. Yeah, because they get into like a spat with the uh, the flower children, and yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's it's interesting that he's chosen this like moment in time to reflect on because I don't I don't think. It's been like an overanalyzed thing, yeah. But it—I don't think it's done a. We've done a good job of thinking about like how it had like a larger effect on culture, which is that the sort of like the hippie moment kind of like ended there, and sort of the mm. the hopefulness of that movement was just immediately washed away mm-hmm. and turned like because the uh, Manson family like 
dressed as hippies and they had the look of hippies they didn't have the same politics as like the the mm-hmm. sort of like lab, like burgeoning left at that moment but that everybody who was a part of that was immediately like oh you're you're one of the manson people and then yeah. that just like disappeared we never saw like hippies again until you know until it just became this like kind of nostalgic like corny way of like thinking about the 60s and 70s yeah well and hollywood um, follows up then with things like dirty harry and death blow right everything death becomes blow. like super right-wing and reactionary as like a correction get correction <laughs> yeah. like, against the manson family um and there's all sorts of like interesting histories around like you know manson had these like interesting connections with the cia and uh, the lsd experiments that were happening at the mm-hmm. time and um, was on the radar of, of the cops and had been picked up a few times, but it was always let go. And there were, there were like so many, like, what could have happened to fix this? And it really just like opened the door for the right wing politic and ushered yeah. it through. Fear and uncertainty, right? Like, yeah. that's what they, they always prey on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, of course. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. And these sort of like the destruction of the family and the sort of like very conservative. Uh, people were able to point to this and say, like, this is what the left has brought us. Mm-hmm. Right. We need to yeah. we need to go shoot hippies in the streets. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so it's it's an interesting moment to look at. Um, also, incredibly well acted. Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio just like knocked this out of the park. Um, yeah. Lots of really good small supporting roles that are also add to add to it. And like people who are just in like a scene or two, like Al Pacino. <laughs> yes. Just crush it, or the little girl that. Uh, is in the scene with Brad Pitt. Yeah. The, like, acting I think that was my scene. favorite scene in the movie. No, no Incredible. With DiCaprio. The yeah, with DiCaprio. DiCaprio. Sorry. I think it's my favorite yeah. DiCaprio performance. Yeah. Period. Of his career. I've said it before yeah. when we talked about this on a, on a different episode, but I love him in this movie. I, that that sequence, with the, like, that could be a short film. Right? Like, just that sequence with him and the girl on the set of this random yeah. Western. Like, like, where they meet and they have their first conversation. Right. And then he nails his scene. Uh-huh. It, and, and it reminds me of, um, I think I've probably mentioned this before, but it reminds me of Sideways. Mm-hmm. Like, when he's talking about the book and, like, he's describing the plot of, like, this guy who would break horses and... He is getting too old, and he, like, got hurt, and he can't really break horses like he used to anymore, and he, like, gradually realizes that he's talking about himself. Yeah. And, like, it works. It, it, it's, like, a, a kind of a trope, whatever, but, like, it works so well here, and DiCaprio delivers it so well. well I, I love it. It's also, like, the meta statement of the movie, which is, like, once you've hit your peak, yeah. how do you then pick yourself up every day and, like, keep waking up and, like... Continuing. Yeah, continuing. Which, which yeah. is, it goes to your earlier point, that, like, yeah. the 60s hit their peak. Right. Right? Like, we, we cut to, the, like, the maximum amount of 60s that we could, yeah. and then Manson comes along, and it's like, how do you continue after Manson? And, like, sometimes mm-hmm. with the, how you continue is you become really reactionary and make dirty hairy and, like, all that garbage. And I yeah. think that Tarantino is positing an alternative answer to that, to that question, um, which is, you know, important. Yeah. So yeah, I liked it too. I think it's good. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a very like enjoyable film to watch. Yeah. It's but also like so intense because if you don't know what happens, you're just dreading the whole time. <laughs> yeah. If you're familiar with the history at all, which not everybody was. That was part yeah. of why yeah. I couldn't get into the movie quite as much. Like I loved a lot yeah. of the individual scenes and moments, but like the context of it was lost on me. Yeah. Yeah. So. I, I, I hear that. Um, but yeah, good pick. I, yeah. yeah, this is also on my short list. 
I think a lot of these are. Um, we're at six. Six. Yeah. So, so my six. number six was Nightcrawler. Nice. Uh, so this was the one with Jake Gyllenhaal, who is an overnight uh, like news photographer, and uh, he discovers that all of the most grisly possible incidents are the ones that sell the best and the ones that the news outlets want the most. Mm -hmm. um, so he tries to kind of sell himself to the news outlet and go out and try to find these different accidents and beat out the other overnight photographers um, and ends up doing some pretty heinous things uh, to accomplish his goals. Um, so I, I love this movie mainly because of Jake Gyllenhaal's performance. So it's so amazing. Yeah. He he really becomes that character so well and it's such an interesting, like kind of sociopathic, terrifying character. Um, I love how much it kind of exhibits the terrifying power of greed and self-interest. Um, there's something unsettling about like the lines that he delivers, not just in the way he delivers them, but what is being said. Because he talks as if he's like a 1950s style like self-help video. Right. He's like lifting lines from you know management books. And yeah, exactly. Like so you can tell he's got these kind of canned like marketing lines that yes. he's spouting at people. And you can tell that he's trying to feign that kind of enthusiasm or wholesomeness or presentation that these videos would normally have. Right. But he does it with a way you can tell that he's feigning it. And that's the amazing part of it. You can tell that he is kind of like robotic it's about it. Bullshit, yeah. And that he's trying to emulate that sort of uh, charisma that he doesn't actually have. Um, and he does that the whole way through, and it's just so captivating to watch. Uh, you see a few times you see him become his true self and kind of explode, and it's terrifying. Um, yeah, just such an amazing performance through and through. Yeah, this one was also on my, my honorable mention yeah. chart list. Um, this is a movie I need to rewatch. I don't think I've seen it since it came out. Mm -hmm. Same. Um, That's but, true most of these for me, I think. Okay, but it, it, it has stuck around. I hope that nobody ever tells Jake Gyllenhaal how good looking he is because <laughs> like right now all he does is like take these wacky roles and just like is a total maniac in, in fucking any everything that he ends up in and I think that it just like so is against because he could be like a leading man like he has the look he has the chops like yeah. he could be that kind of star he did it, it for a while Right, and then he kind of didn't, right? And I don't know if he just got sick of it or It's didn't. probably boring. Right, I'm sure it is. And I love that he is so interested in being something other than that. Yeah. Um, and we get movies like this, um, and they're so great. <laughs> yeah, he does so many great, like, character roles. Yeah. But so differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's, a, he's an actor's actor, right? Like he... I think the local news is also an interesting subject yeah that matter it's an easy punching bag because it's so terrible but it, it is like a pox on our culture yeah. a lot of people watch it and yeah yeah i i i read there's like a regional newspaper where i live that i read and i just kind of like hate read the comments for fun <laughs> and it just attracts like total psychopaths and as a paper, it's very similar to the news organization in Nightcrawler. Because, mm -hmm. like, any murder, any yep. accident, any time, like, a cop is injured, they're, like, on it, top of the... Crime is rampant! Yeah. Yes. And to read the comments, it's, like, a bunch of, like... You would you would think there are, like, people out in the woods in West Virginia, like, getting their guns ready. But, actually, they live among us. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. They're all probably um, preppers and, you know... Total, total yeah. psychos. Yes. And, yeah, the... The comment section of your local newspaper is like, 
where the FBI should be looking. Yeah, like the, yeah. the, 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 <laughs> for New the York, next like shooter. The New York City yeah. equivalent of that is like most neighborhoods. There's probably one on the east side. I know there's one on the west side. Um, have like local blogs that are just about like oh, oh the yeah. store is opening yeah. up here and like or next door is another version. Of <laughs> yeah, yeah, next yeah. door and like yeah. you'll see the same the same culture there. Or it's just every little thing is about you know the the dangerous minorities running wild <laughs> and the the yeah the communities that these that these local news sources attract are terrifying mm -hmm. absolutely terrifying and yeah. they pitch to them they sell yep. to them yeah it gets clicks and yep. that's what uh, this movie's doing it from a tv perspective but yeah. it's the same it's thing same yeah, yeah. same thing same yeah same theory yeah. so yeah good, good pick this is a this is a, a good movie and yeah also very unsettling movie my, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yep. but un unforgettable I'm not surprised that, like, because this came out, what, like, 2014, 2013, something like that? Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, of course it's stuck around that long. Another, another movie with, like, yeah. no good person in yes. it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's no, like, moral center to the movie. Nobody, yeah. Nobody. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, all right, my number six? Yes. Okay, this is a bit of a deeper cut. Also, um, this is a movie called Certified Copy. Um, it barely made the cut. It came out in 2010. Um, this is, have either of you seen it? Certified no. Copy? Uh, I feel like I've heard of it, but I'm not... Sure. This is, um, a, I always struggle to say his name, Abbas Kurosatami, um, who passed away a couple years ago, mm. unfortunately. He also did Taste of Cherry. Um, also starring Julia Pinoche, she was in Cause of Sils Maria. Uh, she's a fantastic <laughs> a actor. Um, this is a pretty crisp, like, hour 40 or so. Um, the premise is that um, Julia Pinoche um, is visiting her daughter in, like, a town in Italy. So it's hard to place, like, what country produced this movie because it is takes place in Italy. It's directed by an Iranian director. Mm. It stars a French actor and also an English actor. So it's a very international film. Um, she is going to see a talk being given by this professor character um, who she doesn't know. Um, and he is talking about um, the nature of authenticity and like what mm. it is for something to be real, what it is for something to be a copy, what it is for something to, uh, to be... The, the actual thing, as opposed to a, a mimicry of the actual thing. Um, she ends up talking to this professor um, character after the, the talk that he gives. They decide to go have a coffee afterwards and they continue the discussion of his, his topic and her life and things like that. The twist comes that you the audience gradually realizes that these two might know each other, like that they might have some sort of history that was basically unremarked and they were behaving as though they didn't. And... It is never totally clear throughout the film whether they have silently mutually agreed to act as though they have, like, a broken marriage or some sort of past or, like, a child together or whether or not they actually do and they have just had such a broken relationship that they've decided to come together in this kind of quasi-stranger type of way, which, of course, directly interacts with the guy's talk at the beginning of the movie about, yeah. like, what is real, what is not, what is authentic what isn't authentic if you are feeling these emotions that are based on a lie are they still real emotions um, if the uh, real thing that underlies these emotions no longer uh, is what it once was can your emotions still be uh, thought of as authentic or sincerely felt or felt the same way that they were before um, and the movie doesn't exactly it doesn't tell you whether or not they know each other like it doesn't have a clear conclusion um, but that it interacts with 
uh, these concepts as well as how they deal with film because we're of course seeing, seeing actors acting out these things because that's not real and like what's our relationship with that um, it, I've never seen a movie like it it's very surprising because I went into it pretty cold <laughs> like you guys now know more about it than I did when I started watching it <laughs> um, and uh, it, 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 it's another one that kind of doesn't leave your mind that, that it, it's basically just two people having a really long conversation for like an hour and a half um, but it, it, the way that it bends and folds and you are one moment totally convinced that they don't, don't know each other and in another moment totally convinced that they do and then back again um, and it is it, unique, genuinely unique in the sense that it's singular um, among the movies I've seen anyway. Um, so it's called Certified Copy. It came out in 2010, so it barely makes the cut here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I like it a lot um, and I've, I've gone back to it a few times and it it keeps rattling around. So check it out. It's not a long watch. It's like under two hours. So certified copy cool um that's it yeah one through six okay great that's all for part one that's all for part one all right um so we'll be back next week with part two we'll we'll be talking about the best the best of the best (laughs) of the 2010s um so thank you for listening everybody if you're liking the show please share it we'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming after next week but in the meantime, you can share with us what movies you like this decade, if you agree with us, if we have terrible opinions about what's good and what's bad. <laughs> um, and please uh, share the show with your, your friends and family and loved ones, and tune in next week for How Have You Not Seen That. <laughs>